You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriolo, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. It's our first show of 2019 after a few weeks off for the holidays. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to try to explain why Jackie Bradley is possibly a breakout guy. I know I've been talking about this for like three years, but it's going to happen this Don't year. Don't hedge on it. He's it's a breakout guy. Happen. Um, I found some really interesting numbers about the Phillies' defensive metrics and how that may have affected their pitchers. You don't know who Taylor Rogers is, but by the time you're done listening to me, I swear you will. The Mets picked up two of our favorites, Keon Broxton and J.D. Davis. I don't know if either one's any good, but we're going to talk about it. And then finally, Nicholas Castellanos, uh, possible trade option, interesting numbers for him. First of all, Matt, hello. Welcome back. 2019. Uh, still a lot of free agents out there, and they're going to sign soon, right? I mean, yes, but there's no, I mean, the, like, there's no real incentive for anyone to sign until spring training, so it's sort of like, I don't know. I guess it's better to have this than to have everybody sign like a month ago and be like, oh my God, when is February going to get here? Um, Jackie Bradley, I feel like he gets a little overshadowed uh, in the Red Sox, even in his own outfield, right? Mookie Betts is the MVP. J.D. Martinez is one of, if not the best hitter in baseball. And uh, Andrew Benatendi was kind of like a postseason superhero. You sort of forget that Jackie Bradley exists. And I guess that sort of makes sense. Do you have any idea how long he's been around? I looked this up. His first game in 2013 uh, Yankees, Red Sox, and Jacoby Ellsbury was in the outfield in the Boston outfield. That's how long he's been around. He, well, he was one. Of, I mean, he was a really good college player who got to the big leagues pretty quickly, and then kind of took a while to catch on. When I think of sh- like streaky players, I, the first three names that come to mind to me are Yasmani Grandal, Lucas Duda, and Jackie Bradley Jr. Right? Because he is so up and down. We've seen him catch fire before. If you look at uh, you know his six seasons in the big leagues, first two seasons really. Really bad. Uh, in 2013 and 14, hit 196, 268, 280. Really bad. Next two seasons were actually really good. He had 36 home runs in 2015 and 2016. Uh, weighted runs created plus of about 120. And then the last two seasons, he's been about 10 points below average in both seasons. Um, but I'm still buying. And here's why I'm buying. Got off to a lousy start last year, right? In the first half, not good. Uh, 210, 297, 345. So that's a 71 weighted runs created plus where 100 is league average. That's bad. Um, some indication that he underperformed a little bit. He had a 238 weighted on base and a 334 expected weighted on base. So there's that. And in the second half, he was actually really good. Uh, 340 on base, 487 slugging. If you look at his weighted runs created plus of 118, it was very similar to Freddie Freeman and Nelson Cruz, which is really good. And he plays elite center field defense. I know that uh, he had a zero defensive run saved. I do not buy that for a second. He had an 11 outs above average that was, I think, tied with Mookie Betts for uh, ninth. And outs, above, awesome. and outs above average doesn't even factor in his amazing throwing arm. He had uh, the hardest tracked outfield throw of the year last year, 103.4 miles an hour, uh, where Sandy Leone, I think, said it was the best throw he'd ever seen. It was awesome. All right, so let's go under the, the hood a little bit here. I don't want to just buy into you know a good second half from a guy who's had a good stretch before, right? But if you look at his hard hit rate, hard hit rate is like my favorite stat to look at. It's simply how often do you hit the ball at 95 miles an hour or more? In 2015, he had a 39%. In 2016, he had a 40%. In 2017, he had a 40%. And in 2018, 50%. That's an enormous jump. It's actually one of the five largest jumps in baseball. Uh, Number one, actually, if you look at guys who had 200 batted balls in each of the last two seasons, this is kind of a weird list. 
Aledmus Diaz. That's so weird because he was like the ball because he was like breakout guy the year before. And yeah, then, like, it's it's maybe that's what hey, Astros are in on him. Mm-hmm. I'm always like going to be taking the side of the Astros here. Uh, number two, Hiano Suarez makes sense. He's awesome. Number three. Ian Desmond somehow was up 13 points. Stop hating on Ian Desmond, Mike. It do, but it doesn't matter since they were all under the ground. Uh, Mookie Betts is number four. And Jackie Bradley tied with a few other guys uh, at plus 10%. That's a 50% hard hit rate. That is elite. That is 10th of 332 qualifiers tied with Betts and Shohei Otani. Like that, that's not an accident. You don't fake that. That's and then awesome. there's also the fact is that he changed. his like He, he made some changes in his swing at the behest well, of exactly. J.D. Martinez. Martinez. And like J.D. Martinez has sort of become like the... Like, when I was the, the people pitching hitting coach. Yeah. So when I was like putting out my hypothetical AL MVP ballot, I I didn't have JD Martinez super high, partially because uh, you know his defense is not a strength, and partially because there's so many good guys in the AL. You know, Trout, Betts, Lindor, everybody. But I had a lot of Red Sox fans coming at me saying, "No, you should give him extra credit because uh, he helped improve Betts, who had a fantastic season, and he helped improve Jackie Bradley, and he talked to like Xander Bogarts." And I'm like, "Okay, I can't verify all that." Um, but it actually seems like this might be true. I, I dug up some quotes. This is a quote uh, from July 22nd. And this is Garen Austin, a reporter from Nesson, uh, who said, Jackie Bradley said that J.D. Martinez approached him and noticed something in his swing. And Jackie Bradley replied, J.D. Martinez has been amazing. I don't think words can describe what he's done. There's a reason why he's so successful. That's high praise. <laughs> also, Jackie Bradley began working with Craig Wallenbrock. And if you don't know that name, he is the hitting coach who helped turn around J.D. Martinez's career from non-tendered or cut or released or whatever happened to him in Houston to superstar Chris Taylor. Uh, and if you look at a quote that he gave, Jackie Bradley gave to WEI in December, this is the first time I've ever heard any of this stuff. What I've been taught my whole life is completely wrong. It's scary to say that, but it's wrong. I feel fortunate enough to make it this far doing it wrong, <laughs> which is an well, amazing quote, by the way. He's not wrong. He's had some good seasons, and he thinks he's doing it wrong. And what I really like about this is you know, he's shown – the skill, and it is a skill to have a hard hit rate. Uh, in that same WER article, he says, Knowing I can hit the ball just as hard as I'm physically, it comes down to the way I impact the ball. I hit too many ground balls, so let's solve that problem. Let's get the ball off the ground, get it more in the air. I can't say I've heard that story before. Oh, wait a minute. We started that. You know, that's the Daniel Murphy story. That's the just, it doesn't work for everybody. Like, I don't know what's going to work for him. But it's more than just like, oh, you had a good second half. Like, there's underlying reasons here. I'm into this. They should retroact. I think that we should now retroactively give the MVP to J.D. Martinez. And I actually now, it's abundantly clear now that J.D. Martinez will be a major league hitting coach within like... If he wants to be. One, oh my one God. year of his, yes. his retirement. So it's like, if you have a guy who's an elite a defensive outfielder. Now, he won his first gold glove last year. I don't worry about that too much. I know Red Sox fans were up in arms. He'd never won one before. But remember, Kevin Kiermaier existed, and Byron Buxton existed, and Lorenzo Cain existed, and Kevin Pollard existed. You don't have to be a great hitter to be a valuable player if you're playing defense like that. But if you are, like, you know, if you look at his 2016 season where he had a, 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 one, a 2015, I think, where he had a 118 weighted runs created plus, which is the same thing he's had in the second half. It's like a five win player. That is, it's not Mookie Betts because nobody's Mookie Betts. That is elite. And I know he's been up and down and I know he's been teasing us, whatever. I still think Bradley's going to have a huge year next year. I mean, he's, what's weird about Bradley is he's kind of, he's kind of sneaky old. Um, because he like he's 29, so it's like it doesn't seem like he's been around that long. But that's because it took him. He was a college player, and it took him a little while to get going. And I, I say old, 29, but yeah. you, you get what I mean. Two more years he, of control. Two, two more years of control. Um, I love him as a player. You know, it's it's interesting sort of how that outfield shakes out. But they still have JD Martinez come can DH, so it's like it gives them that depth. Um, yeah. yeah, what do the Red Sox need? Another star outfielder. <laughs> it's not fair. Um, you know how I feel. I always like a guy who is interesting to watch and is willing to try to work to improve himself. And with quotes like that, I'm super. And honest. there's nothing I enjoy more. I, I'm being honest. There, 
there may not be anything I enjoy more than a fly ball to medium range center field with a man on third. He and Jackie like Bradley, corks on and Jackie, like the anticipation <laughs> yeah. of his throws is always is always awesome. He's he's fantastic. Um, so I'm really excited about Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, like I said, the Red Sox need more talent. Clearly, I want to talk a little bit about the Philadelphia defense, and it's I think one of those rare cases where if you look at the 2018 Phillies defense, it was terrible by the eye test, by standard measures, and by advanced measures. Right? They had minus 146 defensive runs saved. That is the worst on record going back to 2002. If you care about errors and you should I mean, that's as far back as, like, that's, yeah. just to be clear, this that's is, as far back as the stack goes. Yeah. yeah, if you, for some reason, care about errors, and obviously we don't, they had the second most. Uh, just looking at the outfield, they had minus 20 outs above average. That was the second worst, barely ahead of Baltimore. Uh, it was bad. It looked bad. The players complained about it. The, the front office talked about how they needed to improve it. Like, clearly, bad. Uh, and it should be a little bit better this year. I don't think it's going to be great. But, you know, you get Reese Hoskins out of left field back to first base. That's huge. Scott Kerringer is not really a shortstop, so they traded for John Segura. That's going to be a step up. Or it could be Manny Machado. Well, they could still get Manny (laughs) Machado, and they should get Manny Machado. Uh, And then, you know, McCutcheon's, like, fine, I guess, in in one of the corners. But anyway, they're going to be better. So I think what was interesting to me is people saw this truly historically bad defense and thought, well, they had some pretty good pitching last year. And if you improve the defense, which I think they have, all these guys uh, are going to get even better. And I don't really think that's true. I mean, for one thing, Aaron Nola was phenomenal last year, and it's hard to think that he's actually going to be much better than that. So what I did was I looked at the five primary Philadelphia starting pitchers, all of whom are currently slated to return in 2019. Nola, Jake Arrieta, Nick Pavetta, Zach Eflin, and Vincent Velasquez. And I wanted to see, were they all affected equally by this very bad defense? Like, were they all actually injured and by by how much? And I think the answer is no, and I think this is actually kind of fascinating. Um, the first thing I did was just to look at simple batting average in balls in play. Obviously, that doesn't account for the quality of contact, but we can, and we'll do that with StatCast. I just wanted to see, like, at a base level, what was the difference here? Uh, so the major league average is 293. The Phillies allowed a 303. Okay, that makes sense. Pavetta was really bad at this. 328, you know, uh, Velasquez and F1 were both uh, slightly worse than average. Nola had a 251 batting average on balls I, in play. I can't I can't get over this. It's like the, it's like the weirdest it's the weirdest freakiest thing. Uh, there were 140 pitchers who threw 100 innings last year. Pavetta allowed the 10th highest batting average in balls in play and Nola allowed the 10th lowest. Now granted, ground balls, sure he's a good pitcher, soft count up, oh, that all matters. And we'll get to that in a second. But just from there, you can see that is not that's not equal. Even if you look at unearned runs, right? And I, I don't like to usually because it gets into errors. But the idea of, you know, how could Aaron Nola have such an amazing ERA in front of a really bad defense? Well, maybe there were a ton of errors that led to a ton of unearned runs, which wouldn't inflate his ERA. Do you know how many unearned runs he allowed last year? One. A single one. But wouldn't that suggest that he actually, it makes it even more weird? Like, wouldn't a lot of unearned runs suggest that, like, that's how you keep a freakishly low ERA is a lot of unearned runs? That's my point. Yeah. But he didn't allow any unearned runs. uh, Arietta allowed 17 the, wor- the the highest in baseball. Well, that's a, that's to yeah. me that's a big warning sign for Arietta. Arietta well, was actually worse than he was. Uh-huh. We're gonna get to that. Uh, so I thought, okay, well that's really interesting. You know, regardless how you look at it, the spread for these guys: Arietta seven, Eflin seven, Pavetta and Velasquez four, and Nolan one. Clearly, uh, not equal. But these guys are not affected equally by this defense. So what I wanted to do was put into uh, get into the Statcast numbers and put in some contact quality. So I simply looked on ground balls, expected batting average versus batting average. So basically, this is just looking at uh, the quality of contact when it comes to exit velocity and launch angle. And if you look at it, so for example, Arietta uh, had a 222 expected average and had a, a 208. So that actually means he a little outperformed. Um, Nola outperformed by 24 points. He had a 218 expected and had a 194 actual. So the ground balls they were not hurting Nola at all. 
Pavetta got absolutely murdered. He had a 231 expected average, not that much higher than the 218 that Noah had. But where Noah allowed a 194, Pavetta allowed 327. <laughs> that's 96 points. Um, I don't know if that's bad luck, dif- different shifting, the different opponents they played. I think that he might have had a, a few more Carlos Santana at third base starts. I don't I don't have the answer for that, but that's, wow. That's... That's weird. That's that's enormous. Um, I did the same thing, not just on grounders, because obviously, you know, Reese Hoskins in the outfield was a big part of this. Uh, I just looked at it on, on all balls in play, so not home runs. Kind of the same thing. The numbers are, are slightly different, but still, Arietta and Nola both actually outperformed a little bit, and Pavetta, Eflin, and Velasquez both underperformed. And um, I wrote a couple weeks ago about 2019 breakout pitchers. Nick Pavetta's on that list because he struck out like 10 per 9 and then got murdered by this. And it's kind of funny, if you look at Aaron Nola, and you look at his last three seasons, and you just looked at ERA, you think, wow, this is a guy like in the midst of a breakout. 478 ERA in 2016, then 354, then 237. Like, that's an enormous increase. And then if you look at the underlying numbers, strikeout rate, pretty much unchanged, 25 27%. Walk rate unchanged. Ground ball rate unchanged. Hard hit rate unchanged. Now, that's a little misleading. He you know, threw more first pitch strikes, got, got a little more swinging strikes. I'm not saying he didn't get better, because I think he did. Um, but if you look at, let's say, fielding and independent pitching, FIP, right? 308 to 327 to 301. So yeah, exactly. The point, the point is, is it really like he had a 237 ERA last year. More likely his quote-unquote true talent level is like a three ERA pitcher, which is a really good pitcher. Yeah. He's just not – there was just the weirdness of like the way baseball reference war was sort of like – giving him credit for Philly's bad defense. So, like, he ended up having, like, the yeah. highest war in the National Ten, League last year. 10.1 was his worth. That was the that made him the best pitcher in baseball, and he was really good. But I do not think he was the best pitcher in baseball. And you're right, that's what happened. They gave him credit for a 237 ERA and then gave him credit for doing that in front of atrocious defense when that's not necessarily what happened. Um, so my takeaway from this is I think Arietta and Noah – Maybe not so good as their ERAs, and I'm kind of all in on on Nick Pavetta for next year. <laughs> it's a it's the Phillies are an interesting team, and you know Mark Feinstein had a piece today where he basically said like you know he's hearing that it's, he thinks it's heating up that it's going to be the Nats bring back Harper and the Phillies getting Machado, which makes a ton of sense to me for a variety of reasons yeah. um, because the Phillies basically can't allow themselves to get through this offseason without getting one of those guys, and I think that Harper to the Nats just makes sense. So if we assume Machado is kind of the one out there. The Yankees clearly are willing to hold the line. They held the line with Corbin. They can easily hold the line with Machado. They have depth in the yeah, infield. I think it's a mistake. The Red Sox are as good or better. But that's that's fine. They could yeah. just say, hey, we think we're a playoff team anyway. Playoffs are kind of a crapshoot. Sure. Whatever. Um, I'm not saying that's the right attitude. I'm just saying it sort of seems like that's kind of where they, I could be wrong. They could, in the last minute, blows out of the water. But in which case, the Phillies, that my guess is, are willing to spend more than the Yankees are enough that that would be enough to sort of make Machado not yeah. be able to say no. In which case, and also the thing that makes sense is if the Harp, if the Nats get Harper, then the Phillies are like, whoa, we really need to improve. Yeah. But then we really need Machado. So in that case, that's where I think it makes a lot of sense that it lines up that way. And if they get Machado, man, the NL East is crazy. Oh, man, that'll make the, you know, you kind of have to in that sense. Because then, I don't know, who's the fourth best team there? The Mets, maybe? Like, I mean, right now, Fangraphs has the Nats still as the favorite. I'll buy it, the Mets yeah. at 85 wins at number two. And then the Braves and Phillies oh, like right Braves. behind. I mean, they're all within a... The, the Braves, Mets, and Phillies are all within a margin of error. Yeah, I, I kind of forgot about the Braves. I liked the Donaldson deal, but they needed another starter and a reliever and an outfielder. Like, they can't be done, or else they're going to be in fourth place. I feel I like there's, like, five, not even that I'm all that excited about Dallas Keuchel's future. I feel like there's, like, four kind of teams lurking, hoping that, like, they can get yeah. Keuchel on discount. Cincinnati. Cincinnati. And, again, it's going to be one of those things where he signs a deal with, like, an opt-out where he can, you know, where, like, sure. it's able to sort of claim, everyone's able to claim victory. 
All right, one of my favorite things is looking at um, out of nowhere dominant relievers. Like you probably remember how often on the show I talked about Ryan Presley last year. Yeah. And what? Well, yeah, some of you, I mean, some of you like to, you know. You know, brew your own beer in your spare time. Yes. Maybe take up crocheting. Mike will look up random relievers. I, so, I listen, I brought up Ryan Presley for a reason. We're about to talk about a, the, a Twins reliever who had been around for a couple of years, not super interesting, somewhat unknown, but had a good spin rate, turned into a star, wasn't actually Ryan Presley. Taylor Rogers, and I, I have to caveat this, Taylor Rogers is not Taylor Motter, Tyler Austin, Tyler Kinley, or Tyler Duffy. All of whom were on the 2018 Twins. It's like my favorite joke. Yeah, on Cut 4 they did the piece about like where have, Bob, where have all the yeah. Bobs gone. They should do like a similar chart looking at like the rise of Tylers and Taylors That's, in Major League Baseball. They are all on the Twins, although Taylor Rogers' twin Tylers and the Giants is not on the Twins. Uh, but he did like this article. Anyway, Taylor Rogers uh, just turned 28 years old. Left-handed reliever. It was an 11th round pick out of Kentucky in 2012. That was the same draft that the Twins got Buxton and Jose Brios. Debuted in 2016. Pretty uninteresting. Uh, through the end of this past May, he had had a 548 ERA in 2018 and a 384 ERA in 149 games over parts of three seasons. No saves, barely any wins. I honestly did not know who he was like three months ago, nor should you or anybody who wasn't following the Twins. However, on October 29th, I noticed something interesting and I tweeted this out. I looked at all of the pitchers who had faced 250 hitters. So that's 270 guys. And I looked at the top 10 in expected weighted on base. It's like our most powerful stat. It accounts for quality of contact and also amount of contact. And what I noticed was in this top 10, there were nine super studs and also Taylor Rogers, right? I'm just going to quickly read the other nine so you can talk about the quality of pitcher. Edwin Diaz, Blake Trinan, Adam Adovino, Josh Hader, Chris Sale, Dallin Batances, Justin Verlander, Ryan Presley, Jacob deGrom, and Taylor Rogers. And I thought to myself... I might need to pay attention to this guy, and I never ended up doing it for like three more months, um, but he was really good. Last year, the major league average expected weighted on base was 311 for relievers, 305 for him, 245, and that is unbelievable. So, of course, I needed to know how did this happen. Uh, he was a starter in the minors, and not super impressive, came up and was a reliever. Now, I think the, the big turning point here was his new slider. He threw it once on May 16th. He got Tommy Pham to pop out. Threw it multiple times for the first time on May 31st, and after that it was a 20% pitch for him. So uh, that was my break point, right? So from June 1st on, and, you know, 266 pitchers through at least 40 innings, the lowest weighted on base allowed, Blake Trina number one, Taylor Rogers number two. He hits a line of 146, 206, 231. Literally Taylor Rogers. Come on, tw- Twins, last year the Twins, I was all in on the Twins. Maybe I'm, I'm too stubborn. I'm... I'm kind of still in on the Twins as kind of being close, not, closer to the Indians than people so. think. But uh, that's just one man's opinion. Uh, Taylor, no. Taylor, Taylor Rogers is the reason why. On you a, sold me. On July 28th, he allowed two earned runs to the Red Sox. Did not allow a single earned run for the rest of the season. That's 28 games. That is, in the last three seasons, the second longest scoreless streak in baseball behind Tyler Olsen, who was somehow not a twin. Um, that's And then, you know, you look at this list, it's all these random relievers. Adam Liberatore, Yoshihisa Toronto. Um, how did Rogers? become this effective. So I kind of broke this down into three steps here. Number one, he was already really, really tough on lefties. Uh, in 2014 as a double-A starter, allowed just a 555 OPS. Uh, in 2015 as a triple-A starter, got a 402 OPS. And uh, in his first two seasons in the big leagues, kind of the same. Uh, lefties hit 186, 257, 296, and righties crushed it. That is a very good way for a career as an up-and-down loogie. Now, the slider kind of fixed those platoon problems. It's actually really good uh, against righties. He used to be like 60% sinker, 25% curveball. Well, after that, he was 40% sinker, 
30% slider. And uh, after June 1st, righties, who had always crushed him, hit 174, 216, 322. So now there's a guy who dominates lefties who suddenly found out how to attack righties. Well, you get that thing is that the lefties can get that, you know, get the, the, the back foot slider. And we can we can kind of master that pitch. We can do, if you can backdoor it and also throw it to the back foot. It's sort of like the you know the Andrew Miller at his best. That sort of combination is really a way you we see a lot more lefty relievers able to dominate. Well, here's the Statcast part that made me think about Ryan Presley. Last year there were 69 lefties who threw 100 curveballs, and Rogers was seventh in spin. If I up the minimum to 200 curveballs, he'd be third behind only Rich Hill and Caleb Ferguson. Uh, he also added about five, inning, uh, five inches of drop. He changed the way he threw it. If it sounds familiar that a high-spin pitcher could slightly change the way he throws it and become dominating, it should. We talk about this sort of thing all the time. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I actually, before I even knew I was going to write about Taylor Rogers, I just looked at the most dominant pitches in baseball, and when I looked at curveballs from relievers, and I sorted it by expected weighted on base, Taylor Rogers was number four, and that's sort of what made me start thinking about him as well. Now, I think he's, like, quote-unquote, a guy, but it also sort of makes me sad the 2019 Twins in their bullpen could have had Ryan Presley and Taylor Rogers and Trevor May, who people forgot about because he blew out his arm, but he came back, 36 strikeouts and only five walks. That could have been really good. Instead, they traded Ryan Presley for uh, two guys, I don't think either of whom are on the top 10 pipeline list for the Twins. And that's, that is your Taylor Rogers update, uh, maybe for 2019. Now, there were some moves over the holidays. Uh, I can't say there were many moves, but there were some moves. Yeah, the, the, the Mets decided to... Work all weekend? Yeah. It's sort of odd that suddenly, like, out of nowhere, it's like, out of nowhere, they just made three trades yeah. in a span of about 20 hours on Saturday and Sunday. Wait, what was the third trade? I've got two Kim trades Kim Oh, I did they forget trade about Kim Kim. Uh, That one's not super interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Mets made some trades, and I think maybe for the larger baseball world, that weren't worth noting. But for us, if you've been listening to this show for like two and a half years, they traded for Keon Broxton and J.D. Davis. I, I texted Matt and I said, when are they going to trade for Luis Perdomo? Because that would really be the StackCast podcast trifecta. Uh, they did. I'm not really sure I liked either of these trades because I think Bobby Wall, who went to the Brewers, is like a ready-now reliever with a big arm if he can throw strikes. Um, Luis Santana, who's a minor league infielder who went to Houston, Mets fans really seem to like him. That's, you know, I, I guess something that the Astros can work on. I don't know if I like these trades, but I, I am interested by They're kind guys. of odd. I mean, it's one of those things where you're not going to necessarily miss any of these guys on their own, but it's like a lot of quantity of, of, of guys who probably ranked, a few of them ranked in the Mets, like, you know, 11 to 30 range on their prospect list, where it's like we you're trading a handful of them, and it's unclear how much you're really upgrading the roster. The Mets' depth has been a problem, so yes, Broxton and, and J.D. Davis certainly certainly helped that, and they're inter- yeah. they're both interesting in their own right. Santana had a hit had a hit for a really high average in uh, the Appy League, um, but I think he's a second base only. He sort of has you know you know. I don't, I'm not comparing him to it, but he has the Jose Altuve profile, like a short second base only guy who hits for a high average. Most of those guys turn out to be nothing, but sometimes they turn out to be Jose Altuve. I think I'm so in the can for the Astros that anytime they ask for guys, I want to stop and think, why? Like, what do you? Why do you see this guy? The thing is, the Astros have done a really good job with pitchers. With hitters, it's like it's That's not true. like they're really like turning a lot of guys into start. Their their star hitters are like Alex Bredman, second overall pick in the draft. Carlos Correa, number one overall pick in the draft. George Springer, number ten pick in the draft. Yeah. And Altuve, like and it's not like they're improved, but I'm not sure that wasn't just like his hard work, you know. So like it's not like they're on the pitching side. They've obviously you know they took guys like McHugh and Morton and turned them into guys. Cole they, and Verlin, they, they yeah. brought Verlin, like there's there's no question with pitchers they have a, they have some sort of secret sauce with hitters. I mean, if anything, you could say like they they blew it on JD Martinez. So like, <laughs> a little bit. Like that said, 
the Astros are smart front office. Don't mean to take away from them. I mean, Broxton is really interesting. A lot of people are saying, well, he and Ligaris are kind of redundant. I don't actually really see it that way. They're redundant in that they are righty center fielders with good defense. And I think it stops there. As hitters, they're totally oh, different. Yes. Like, Ligaris is a guy who hits for contact with very little power. Right. Um, Broxton is only power. Tons of strikeouts. Tons of strikeouts. And also, he's a guy you with, with more pure speed that you would want as, like, a pinch front. Ligaris is the guy that mets with pinch run, but only because... They don't have a ton of speed on the bench. Broxton is a guy who comes in and is like, oh, this guy's actually really fast. Yeah, Broxton was the primary center fielder for the Brewers in 2017 before they brought in Lorenzo Cain. Uh, and that year he had kind of a weirdly interesting season, at 20 homers and 21 steals. That's really good. Uh, 299 on base and a 38% strikeout rate. Not so good. He spent most of last year in AAA and struck out 36% of the time in AAA. Also not so good. Uh, but he played uh, not that much, but he got up in the big leagues for 89 plate appearances. And he was, on a play-by-play basis, maybe the best defender in baseball last year, outfield defender. And the way we look at that is in the outfield, uh, we have, uh, he had, of the balls that were hit to him, he was expected to make 85% of those plays, just based on the difficulty. He made 97% of them, and that's plus 12 points. That is number one of any outfielder with 50 opportunities. That's really, really good, and it makes sense. He's got elite speed, 29.7 feet per second. That's tied for 15th of 549 qualifiers. Uh, that's fantastic. And the reason we liked him was because back in 2016, when he came up and played half a season, he had an elite hard hit rate. He had a 49% hard hit rate that was ninth of 391 guys with 100 batted balls. There's a lot of tools here. I just don't know that he's ever going to make enough contact. He's going to be 29. Like, he's not young. I mean, I think, I mean, he's, he's always hit lefties well. To me, it's more like if you use him correctly, he could be valuable. Because with speed and defense, he gives you something. And if you could kind of make sure you don't expose him to tough right-handed pitching... You know, he's, he's a useful player, and they have two left-handed hitting guys in the outfield. They're, they're two primary guys, so there should be, if they're smart, there's there's opportunity to sort of, you know, utilize him correctly. Yeah, I like the idea of some sort of, like, defensive replacement outfield where, where he and Ligaris and, you know, either Nimmo or Conforto were out there at the same time. Like, that's really good. And, you know, Mets defense was a huge problem last year. They also got J.D. Davis, and J.D. Davis has not done much in the major leagues. Last year he had 113 plate appearances, hit 175, 248, 223. That's bad. Uh, he really crushed in AAA. Hit 342, 406, 583. Obviously some high offense environments there, but I don't think he has anything more to prove in AAA. He also pitched three games, and I thought this was really fun. Over the last two seasons, he's actually gotten into three major league games as a pitcher. He's usually a third baseman, can also play first, left, maybe right. Two and two-thirds innings, faced 11 guys, four strikeouts, one walk, one single, one home run, Topped out at 93.4 miles an hour on a fastball in 2017. And he's also got, you know, some real power. Uh, Last year, he got up to 111.8 miles an hour on his hardest hit ball. It was a single, but it was a 362-foot single that hit the top of the left field wall last September. Last year, only 24%, so call it one quarter, of hitters with 25 batted balls got up to 111 miles an hour. So that's a skill. His arm is really a skill. Um, again, I don't know if he's going to make enough contact. I don't think he's athletic enough. He doesn't draw enough walks as a backup. It's kind of interesting. Um, I, does he take playing time away from Jeff McNeil at third base? That's not ideal. I don't know how it's going to shake out. And I also don't know about this rumor where Brian Dozier, the Mets are interested in that. That makes no sense that makes at all. No, that makes no sense at all. I mean, to me, it's, 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 I mean, the Mets depth has been atrocious. So in the sense that they're trying to win now and improve their depth, the moves make sense. It would make more sense if they followed it up with, Hey, we're going to sign Marwin Gonzalez, yes. and we're going to go sign a. Because uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about AJ Pollock. I think now that you have Broxton and Lagaris, going after Marwin makes more sense now because he could be a primary sort of like 
left fielder, backup infielder, you know, what have you. Well, that's you. the thing. Like, you could have, let's say Frazier is going to be the third baseman, right? And let's say that Cano is going to be the second baseman, and Alonzo's at first, and Smith is in the minors, right? So your backup infielders are Davis and Jeff McNeil, but neither of those guys can play shortstop. Like, who's your backup shortstop? when If Rosario doesn't doesn't play, I think he'll be good, but he's not going to play every day. Who's your backup shortstop? You need someone like Marwin Gonzalez? Or that's part of that's I, part that's part of why I think Marwin makes makes yeah. a ton of sense. We'll see. Um, they just came to this you know insurance agreement with David Wright that may uh, this buyout that maybe will uh, give them a little more freedom to yeah. take after some of these guys. I, I can hear the uh, Luis Guillorme fanboys out there. He's not, he's not going to be on the roster every day. Uh, it's not going to happen. Um, finally, Nicholas Castellanos is a guy I think we've talked about for a while because he's got really strong hard hit rates and he's really developed into a pretty strong hitter. Um, Twenty seven in March. One year of control left, and he's kind of popped up in some trade conversations a lot. Obviously, the Tigers are rebuilding, and they are not going to be contending in the one year he has remaining. Uh, hasn't happened yet, and are you surprised by that? Do you? I think they're probably asking for too much based on a one year of control guy who's a terrible defender. But. Yeah, I mean, Jason Becker, our Tigers reporter, had a story where like their GM Alvilo was quoted basically saying, "Well, like this is basically our, our best chance to get impact prospects because he's like, you know, they don't really have much left to trade." And he's a year from free agency, and theoretically right now, if they trade him, they'd have a lot more value than the deadline because the team could give him a qualifying offer next year if they get him for opening day. The problem is he doesn't really have a position. I wonder if that's the sort of thing that's slowing some of these trade negotiations. Like, you look back at some of the last Tigers trades, the J.D. Martinez trade was, like, roundly penned for what they got back. The Marlins, they still haven't traded Real Muto. Nobody really loved the trades they made for, like, Ozuna and, and Christian Yelich. Like, you know, obviously, Lewis Brinson did not look good. And I wonder if they're just like, we can't repeat those mistakes. We have to get 80-grade talent. And that's that's tough for trade deadlines. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. Like you said, he doesn't have a position. So I know there's been rumors about him to the Dodgers. I can't see him playing right field every day. Like, no, same with, no way. same with the Braves. There's rumors of him to the yeah. Dodgers and Braves. It, it really kind of has to be an AL team. But, man, he can hit. I mean, like... Last year, he's been incredibly consistent. His weighted runs created plus the last three years. In 2018, it was 130. year before that, it was 112. year before that, it was 119. In the last two years, the expected weight on base has been almost identical, 371 and 378. Um, the guy, he can hit. And yeah. also, the other thing is he's been eaten up a little bit by Comerica. You know, we've joked a lot on this show about how every year Miguel Cabrera leads the league in barrels that are they turn into outs. Well, this year, the player with the most barrels, barrel balls as defined by StatCast, are sort of like the optimum launch angle and exit velocity um, that generally produce, what is it? Uh, 500 expected batting average and a 1,500 expecting slugging. It's real good. That's it's real good, average. essentially. He had 17 barrel balls that went for outs, which was the most in the majors. But right? but, but only seven of them were at home. Which is weird. <laughs> I know. But it's still, this year, Comerica Park still had by far the most of the majors of any ballpark. Right. So the you point stands. Like, center, you're doomed. Yeah, he's basically, he's been he's been hurt by Comerica to a certain extent, at least by... by right, right, right. But he's, he's real good, right? So over the last three seasons, uh, I looked at everybody who had 1,000 plate appearances in 16, 17, 18. So that's 235 guys. I looked at expected weighted on base. And the range there goes from 425, J.D. Martinez, to 253, Billy Hamilton. I think that all makes sense. Of those 235 guys, he's tied for 17th, 93rd percentile. Uh, and these are some names. Like, the three guys ahead of him, Justin Turner, Bryce Harper, and Kendris Morales. The three guys behind him, uh, Tommy Pham, Anthony Rizzo, and Daniel Murphy. Like, he can crush the ball. I don't know where he's going to play. Last year, he had a negative 25 outs above average. Worst. In, that was worse than Reese Hoskins. But what's, what's interesting is the year before, he was minus two. No, no, no. But but he only played 20 games in the outfield the year before. Because oh, he was a bad third baseman. And they converted him late in the season to the outfield. I, I, I will buy that inexperience is some part of it. I also just don't think 
he's going to suddenly become a good outfielder. No, he actually has slightly above average speed, but I, I agree with you. So it's, he really makes sense in an AL team where he you play him in the outfield a little bit, but yeah. he's mostly a DH. Right, like right, almost like the J.D. Martinez role. You know, once or twice a week in the outfield, uh, in DH some of the time. And, you know, there's some teams that make sense. Cleveland makes so much sense. Like, we wanted McCutcheon to Cleveland, I think, for months we talked about that. Right now, the Cleveland depth chart, and this sets aside Bradley Zimmer, who hurt his shoulder and is going to be out for some of the season. Um, it's some combination of Jordan Luplo, Jake Bowers, Leonis Martin, Greg Allen, and Tyler Naquin. I don't think that's good enough. I think I just named a bunch of guys who are all fourth outfielders. I like Martin. He's a really good center fielder, um, but he also had a life-threatening infection last year. It, I mean, It's amazing that the this speaks to some of the weakness of the AL Central, that they're still projected to win 93 games by Steamer and like run yeah. away with the AL Central with this outfield. Well, I don't I see this is where we disagree. Like I don't actually think the Twins are, are that great. And I think you you but I also think we had that same conversation before last year. Yes, we did. And I, as I remember there was some <laughs> this sort is, of This is not a rerun. There was some sort of friendly wager where you insisted that the Twins would be within 5 games of Cleveland and uh, we should probably try to find the audio of that just to to confirm. Um I I think Cleveland makes a ton of sense. And I really hope that teams have moved past, like, I'm not going to trade within the division. Although, as I remember, I think the Tigers did trade Leotis Martin to Cleveland in the first place. So maybe they don't care about that. One thing I think might actually weirdly be holding up the Castellanos market is the Jose Martinez market. Because they're very similar profiles. They are. Right-hand guys who can't really play the field. Similar kinds of hitters. Mm-hmm. Hit the ball hard. Don't strike out a ton. But Martinez has three more years of team, four more years of team control, whereas Castellanos has one. So if I'm trading for a guy... Although Martinez, I think, is actually older, but um, he's just he is older. He's like three years older. But I think that that could actually any team who's interested in trading for one of these guys is almost certainly interested in trading for both of them. So it's sort of hard. It's kind of hard to value them against each other, given they're so similar in so many ways, but uh, have different levels of team control. Yeah, I think Cleveland makes a ton of sense uh, for Martinez as well. I don't buy the Dodgers at all. Uh, Two other teams I want to throw out there: the Astros. I think you know Josh Reddick did not have a very good season in right, and you know they talked about not wanting to use. Uh, Yuri Gurriel as their everyday first baseman, but they haven't done anything about it. So right now it's Reddick and Wright, Gurriel and Tyler White as their first base DH. You can find playing time for Castellanos there. That's what we talked about. I wanted Nelson Cruz to go there. And of course, Tampa Bay. Uh, right now, Austin Meadows is their right fielder. Yandy Diaz, who we love, but he hasn't actually produced yet. And uh, Jimon Choi. So that's their right fielder, first base DH. And, you know, Diaz can play some third as well. You can find playing time there. Any team that basically we discuss as a fit for Nelson Cruz would be a fit for Castellanos or Martinez. That's right. And I think the four teams I said were, were Astros, Rays, Twins, which is where Cruz ended up, and Seattle, who has Encarnacion. I mean, you know the Rays are going to do something funky before the season starts. The question is, like, what it is and when. And I think the trading for one of these guys, trading for Castellanos or uh Martinez makes too much sense to not happen. What if the Rays went out and said to Harper one year and forty five million dollars? Uh, well, that's what you know. <laughs> Will Will Leach wrote about that a couple months ago. Basically said yeah. you know, asking for a ten year deal, there's only like four teams in. But if he yeah. says I'm only want the one year deal, there's like thirty teams that are. That in. would be phenomenal. I don't think it's likely to happen. Hopefully by this time next week, we'll have a little more information on some free agent movement. Uh, this is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Statcast podcast. Thanks for listening.